Let's pray together that God will open our eyes and our ears to the word today. Jesus, through your spirit, will you unstop our ears and open our eyes to hear the glory of your good news and your character proclaimed today. Amen. So we are at the end of a sermon series on Jonah, and today we'll be looking at Jonah 4. And as I read it, again, I invite you to close your eyes and picture the images of this dialogue and response that Jonah has. I'll begin with 310. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So before we move on to the question, I'd like to introduce another new word. Maybe it's not new to all of us, but the word is schadenfreude. And it does appear in English dictionaries, but we don't have an English word for it. And the the simple definition of schadenfreude is pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortunes. So um, a, a simple explanation might be if you were in school, a child or a youth, and someone else maybe made fun of you, bullied you a little bit or picked on you, and then one day they, got, they failed a test. Maybe you felt a little good inside. That's schadenfreude, okay? A 19th century philosopher defined it as a mischievous delight in the misfortunes of others, a feeling closely akin to cruelty. 
it takes the place which compassion ought to take. Compassion is its opposite and the true source of all real justice and charity. And in our story today, I think that Jonah is anticipating feeling schadenfreude. He thinks he will soon experience it, and he is anticipating it because still, still he can't wait to see Nineveh destroyed. So let's look at this closer. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Jonah chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 3, we read that God changes God's mind and relents, or relents from sending the destruction or calamity, which is interesting because it's the same word as evil in this text, to Nineveh because Nineveh has turned from its evil way and the violence of their hand. And right away, we see Jonah's reaction. Chapter 4 is about Jonah's reaction and God's calm and compassionate and measured response. So in verse 1, the text literally says, this was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he burned. So Jonah has watched his five-word sermon that we learned about last week be used by God to turn an entire city from their violent ways. Jonah has heard about the king, the great king who got off his throne and took off his robe, who covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in dust. Jonah has seen the people and the animals wearing sackcloth and fasting. He's probably seen the, the eyes of the hungry children. They were fasting too, and the animals. Jonah has witnessed the transformation of Nineveh, and he can't handle it. So he burns with anger. He accuses God for being God. He accuses God for being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He accuses God for being one who relents from sending calamity. Because Jonah doesn't want God to be God. Jonah knows God's character well. He knows it, and he's speaking the truth about God, but he doesn't like it. This isn't a moment of praise. Usually when we hear these phrases about God, which are repeated numerous times throughout scripture, they are in the context of rejoicing, of celebrating the goodness of God. But not so this time. Jonah's mad. And he, he's mad because to him it's not fair. And it's not just. And so he burns. And so in his rage, Jonah tells God to kill him. So now God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I don't want to live in a world where people aren't punished by an angry God. Jonah would just rather die. He is so miserable and so angry and so desirous of this future moment of vindication and schadenfreude when he gets to watch God raise Nineveh. He would just rather die than celebrate the success of his mission. God's kindness toward Nineveh doesn't surprise Jonah at all. He expected it, which is why he didn't want to go, and which is why now he's so mad. And so he seethes. And so God comes in. He's so calm, and he's so gracious, and he cuts to the quick. Have you any right to be angry, Jonah? Crickets. This is Jonah giving God the silent treatment. 
And, and still we see in the text that somehow Jonah is still holding out some hope that maybe, just maybe, God will overturn the city. So he goes to the outside, he leaves the city, he goes outside, he sets up some kind of booth, a kind of a temporary shelter from which he can watch the fireworks and blasting. Now, there's nothing that's happened in the story that should lead him to believe that this will become a reality, but there he goes, weaving brush together and gathering leaves to sit on, and there he waits, holding his breath, waiting to see what will happen next, waiting for God to strike, maybe, just maybe. But these temporary huts, they're not very good to shelter one from the hot days and the cold nights. And so the next morning, God appoints or prepares a plant, probably a castor oil plant like this picture here. And this plant grows fast. This is another miracle in the book. It, it grows up over Jonah to shield him from his misery. And it is a good shade. And the text says Jonah is very happy about the plant. Just as an aside, this is the only time Jonah's described as happy in the whole book. Okay, so, but the next day, God appoints a worm, and the worm chews the plant, so the whole thing dies. And the next day, and that day, God appoints a hot east wind, and Jonah is miserable. Nineveh hasn't been blasted, his shelter is dodgy, his plant died, and he's burning both from the anger inside and the scorching heat outside. And so Jonah goes full hissy fit. The text literally says that he asks himself to die. And God, repeating himself like a calm parent, says, are you really so angry about the plant? Now we know this is kind of a trick question because we know that Jonah is angry about the plant, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is Nineveh. Jonah says, yes, of course I'm angry. And then just in case God hasn't heard him the first two times, Jonah reminds God that he would rather be dead. Perhaps he's reminding God that he wishes God wouldn't have saved him from sinking to the bottom of the ocean. It's like a child saying, I wish I would never have been born. I wish I were dead. I wish our ship would have sank. I wish that fish would have chewed me up. I wish the Ninevites would have flayed me. I wish I were dead. And then God responds, this calm, gracious parent, the God who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, is demonstrating his character to Jonah just like he did to Nineveh. So here's a paraphrase from Leslie Allen about what God said. Let me analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant, but what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it could not be very deep, for it was here one day and gone the next. Your concern is dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You weren't devoted to the plant like a gardener. If you feel as badly as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like? who tended a plant and watched it grow only to see it wither and die, the poor thing. And this is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All these people, all these animals, I made them. 
I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and they mean the world to me. Your pain is nothing to mind when I contemplate their destruction. Do you hear God's tears? Do you hear God weeping? Because I think he is. And then he opens the door. He makes space for Jonah to respond. And should I not be so concerned about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And in contrast to Jonah's desire to sit under his fancy plant and watch Nineveh sizzle, God has compassion. God knows the Ninevites. He formed their inward parts. God knit them together in their mother's womb. Just as a gardener knows each stone, the placement of each bulb, the spots where the soil is sandy and the places where it's loamy, God knows Nineveh. And he has compassion on it from the children and the people with disabilities who haven't yet learned the difference between their right and left hands to the cattle, the cattle that are all dressed up in their lament costumes, mooing because they're hungry. God has noticed and his heart is breaking. And, and so he's reaching out to Jonah, giving Jonah opportunity to change, to model God's compassion. God sends this miraculous plant to Jonah to remind him of what it's like to care. And then he asks a question, and then the story's over. That's the end of Jonah. That's the end of the book, at least. Did you think there was another chapter? I mean, this is a cliffhanger. What happens next, right? Does Jonah die out there outside the city? Does he hear the cries of the hungry children and the bleeding of the sheep? Is Jonah's heart moved to compassion like God? Does Jonah recognize and celebrate the miracle of the way God used his message to deliver Nineveh? How does Jonah respond? What happens next? We don't know. And that's the point of the story, I think. Because we don't know, we have to ask ourselves what we would do. And when we ask ourselves what we would do, we become Jonah. We recognize our own angry and frightened and disobedient responses toward God. And rather than be, being met with fireballs from heaven, we're met with a question mark. Should I not have concern? God asks. Should I not have concern, Joy? Should I not have concern for you? Jesus told a story that's similar in the way it ends to the book of Jonah. The beginning and the middle aren't as similar, but in Matthew 20, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as being like a landowner who goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard. He hires some, and they agree to a, a daily payment, a denarius, which is a very fair, generous daily wage, and the workers begin working. Then at 9 a.m., the landowner sees other workers in the marketplace. They're doing nothing. And, and so he says, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. And then this happens again at noon and at 3, and then at 5 o'clock. The landowner says, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And the workers say, well, no one's hired us. You also go and work in my vineyard. So when the day is over at evening, when it's 6 p.m., 
The owner of the vineyard says to his manager, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one tired and going to the first. So the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and they each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble to the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked one hour, they said, and, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. And then the landowner answers them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Is Jonah envious because God is generous? Jonah has been rescued, rescued from drowning, rescued from the storm. The sailors have been rescued, and Nineveh has been rescued, and Jonah can't handle it. Not only is he refusing to live in thanksgiving for God's mighty deeds of rescuing him, he's envious of Nineveh. Are you envious because I am generous? God asks. Jonah wants each Ninevite to be repaid for each evil deed they have done. A fireball for each person tortured or an earthquake for each genocide. Jonah wants Nineveh to be repaid according to their evil. But that is not what God is doing. Fleming Rutledge writes, If human nature were the judge in such a situation, we would pay according to hours and productivity. Not so God, who, like the landowner in the parable says, do you begrudge my generosity? So God being judge is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it slices the way we like because God is for us. But on the other hand, it slices the way we don't like because he is also for everyone else without the usual distinctions. And that means no more A-list and B-list. And therefore, no more building up of our own egos at someone else's expense. What we see with God here in Jonah is a God who shows great concern, great compassion to the people of Nineveh and their animals. It is not a God preoccupied with fairness but a God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is a God whose spirit moves in a city to turn people from their wicked ways, to turn the king, to put words of a good prophet into the king's mouth. And God does this with his infinite resourcefulness. We can't imagine infinite resourcefulness. We like to count our money and to manage our time and to make sure each person gets a fair and equitable Christmas present and to count out the cookies in the packet so each child gets the same number. And sometimes we get so caught up in our own vision of fairness and our fear of scarcity, we start to wonder if maybe God's graciousness needs to be counted up and divvied out too. But if we believe that there's only so much grace to go around, we miss the point of God entirely. There is a wideness in God's grace, and it's a wideness we can't measure because we're limited in time and energy and car seats and horsepower and cupboard space. We imagine that God is too, but he's not. 
And so the generosity of God here, both in Jonah and in Matthew 20, points to a God willing to show so much compassion, he sends his own son. God gives and gives and gives and gives and never runs out. We run out. Jonah runs out. I think at the beginning of the book, he's basically already run out. You know, he runs out of goodwill, if he ever had any. He runs out of steam. He runs out of words. He will run out of anger, I think. And we run out too. At the end, we all really run out because we die. But God doesn't run out. Jonah seems to believe that there is only so much blessing that God has to pour out, that God's blessings are limited, that if God has blessed Israel, then God can't bless anyone else. But that is not the case. Because God cares about Nineveh, about the people and the animals. God cares about those workers who came in last and only picked one grape. God cares about Jonah. And just as God didn't give up on Nineveh, he hasn't given up on Jonah. And God keeps coming back, asking Jonah about his anger. And God keeps listening to his response, giving him space to answer, leaving the story open-ended. What did Jonah do, we wonder? You tell me. It's up to you. Some of you today may find yourself agreeing with Jonah. Maybe you've wanted God to bring about justice. You've been in relationship with God for a long time, and you've made a lot of good choices. You have worked really hard, and maybe it doesn't seem fair to you that grace is being extended to those who've sat on the margins for so much of their life. Maybe it doesn't seem fair that others are being paid and being rescued, and you're still waiting to be rewarded. So I invite you to meditate on the grace of God that has already been extended to you. Because what God has poured out and worked within you is grace. Your long obedience and your long work with God is grace. God is not fair, but God is just. Others may find yourselves in the Ninevites. You've finally come back to God. Perhaps it was recently. For you, too, God's grace flows deeply and freely into your life. Maybe this grace has been transformative immediately, just like it was for the king of Nineveh. You've stood up from your throne, pulled off your robe, and issued a public declaration about the good character of God. If this is you, rejoice. Rejoice and share this good news with others. And maybe you've never heard this message before. Maybe Jonah has never come to your town. Maybe you've just been waiting for something to happen. Or maybe you're starting to hear that call and that voice calling you to turn, to enter into participation in life with Jesus. This call is to you too. It is stories like yours that God cares about and sends the prophets to. And to you, this text says, turn. Turn to Jesus. And finally, maybe some of you are back in Jonah 1. Maybe you've heard God's call in your life and you're actively resisting. Maybe you're running in the opposite direction. It's a miracle you're here today. And to you, I say, jump in. Jump in and God will rescue you. These are our calls, wherever we are on our Jonah journey. This week, I invite you to meditate on Jonah. I encourage you to read the book all at once in several sittings. I encourage you to read it aloud to a friend or a spouse, a child. Read it three or four times. Read it 
and then be silent and ask God, where am I here? Where am I?